Welcome back to Gnostic Insights. My name is Dr. Sid Ropp, and I'm your host. Welcome back to Gnostic Insights. Today we're going to talk about the Demiurge and the nature of the Demiurge. I'm responding to correspondence from a listener of the Gnostic Insights podcast, and he belongs to a Gnostic church. He was concerned that the way I talk about the Demiurge puts the Demiurge on the left rather than the right. In other words, that the Demiurge is aligned with evil rather than with goodness. And it is important to him for us to consider the Demiurge to be on the right. So I spent the last week again, this is the second week now, that I've looked into the nature of the Demiurge. And I've got to tell you, other people's writing about the Demiurge is all over the map. The Sethians tend to put the Demiurge on the left side, particularized in the form of Yaldabaoth, whom they are calling the son of the fallen eon that they call Sophia. And that's part of this very uh, labyrinthian, Sethian Gnosticism. I'm not coming from that line of reasoning. Now, this fellow that I'm corresponding with, he it calls himself a Valentinian. Their church believes that they are direct apostolic descendants of the original apostles through this line of Gnostics that have survived unto this day. And it is their, at least it is his understanding, that the Demiurge is not Yaldabaoth, and it's not a fallen eon itself, but rather it is working for the good. Well, the way they think of the Demiurge is not as Yaldabaoth or the aborted fetus of Sophia and all of that, they think of the Demiurge as the creator god of this universe who is an impartial judge of this universe and actually is doing God's work through that judgment that it is the appointed judge of the universe. So I've been spending a couple of weeks looking up various references to the Demiurge in various Gnostic books and commentaries on the Demiurge from various websites and books. And as I say, it's all over the map. You can't really figure anything out by going down all of these rabbit trails. And the reason I say that is this. Gnosis means knowledge that comes from within. Gnosis means the knowledge of our true self as given to us through the all, because our self is a fractal embodiment of the all and the fullness of the hierarchy of God. We are not supposed to look things up in the library. 
We're not supposed to have to look things up on the internet or listen to a variety of people giving their opinions about what they read. What we are supposed to be able to do, and anybody should be able to do this, is directly contact the fullness ourselves. Now, this sort of getting in direct contact with the Father or the will of God or the fullness of God, that's generally considered to be mysticism because mysticism means that you can commune with the spiritual dimension of reality and not only the physical and psychological dimensions. But once you start saying that, when you start using the word mysticism, well, now we've opened the doors to being mystics, and then we get into all these other branches and fingers, tendrils of mysticism, and people again, become led astray, in my opinion, through seeking mystic sources. You don't need to go that direction to directly commune with the will of God. Gnosis comes directly from the will of the Father. Gnosis is the information embodied within ourselves that is a fractal of the actual fullness of God. So, in all of this research I've been doing in the last couple of weeks, I found out some basic historical notions and how it is that people came up with these historical notions of the Demiurge. But for right now, let me read to you directly out of the Tripartite Tractate in Einar Thomason's translation, and we'll see how the Demiurge came to be, beginning with verse 76 of the Tripartite Tractate. And we're speaking about the Word which is translated as Logos, and that is why I call this eon Logos, or the Word. In the beginning was the Word. For this eon was one of those who had been given wisdom, with the ideas first existing independently in his mind, so as to be brought forth when he wanted it. Because of that, he had received a natural wisdom, enabling him to inquire into the hidden order being a fruit of wisdom. And I believe that that hidden order is the hierarchy of the fullness of God. There is a sorting that occurred with the eons, and they sit in a hierarchy, an ordered hierarchy that makes sense, just like our feet are underneath our chests. It wouldn't work to have your chest being the thing in contact with the ground rather than your feet. So our feet are down there, and then we have our ankles, and then we have our legs. That is the order of our body from the ground up. That's what it means by order. Order also refers to mathematical concepts. Math is thought to exist in the hierarchy, in the fullness. That's where we get mathematical notions from, ordinals. Thus the free will with which the members of the all had been born caused this one to do what he wanted, with no one holding him back. Now the intention of this word was good, because he rushed forward to give glory to the Father, even though he understood a task beyond his power, having desired to produce something perfect from a union in which he did not share, and without having received orders. This eon was the last to have been brought forth through mutual assistance, and he was the youngest in age. And 
This mutual assistance refers to what I call the simple golden rule, that the eons reach out to each other, and they build things together that none of them could build on their own, up there in the fullness. Quoting again, And before he had produced anything to the glory of the will of the Father, and in the union of the members of the all, he acted presumptuously out of an overflowing love and rushed forward toward that which surrounds the realm of perfect glory. So, this eon acted presumptuously, and that's where, in my new Gnostic gospel here, ego is born. Presumptuous will is another way of speaking about egoic will, or self-centered will, or the will that arises from your desire, rather than the will of the Father, or the will of the All. However, notice he did it for a good cause. He did it out of overflowing love, and he rushed forward to that which surrounds the realm of perfect glory, and that perfect glory being the first cause, the Father, as we call it, or we could call it in modern language, the ground state of consciousness in its perfection. So Logos was going back upstream, or the word was going back upstream. He wanted to go directly back to the Father, rather than being part of the community of the fullness. Reading on, It was not without the will of the Father that this word had been brought forth, nor that he should rush forward. Rather, the Father had brought him forth for the things he knew must take place. For the Father and the realm of the all now withdrew from him in order that the boundary should be firm that the Father fixed. For it does not exist to prevent the unreachable from being reached, but because of the will of the Father, and also in order that the things that happened should be for the sake of an economy that was to come about. And it was not possible that it should not come to pass for the revelation of the fullness. So that long sentence has to do with the boundary, and the boundary is a wall that is surrounding the fullness. In my drawings, I show that wall surrounding the universe, because it's a wall between them. And it's a lot harder to draw a wall around infinity than it is to draw a wall around our bounded universe. So that's why I flipped the boundary to be around us, rather than to conceive of it as being around the fullness and the Father, because that would be an infinite boundary. And it happened for the sake of an economy that was to come. And remember, we have a podcast about the economy. And what an economy is, it's a set of related variables, a set of related things that work together and function as a whole, as a gestalt, as they call it. So an economy in our normal walking around life usually refers to our monetary systems and our systems that produce money, like industry, right, and labor. That That is what it is thought of as an economy. But the more abstract use of the word economy is a system of related things that work together as one large thing. That's an economy. And this sentence said that the economy was destined to come about by the Father, it was his will, for the revelation of the fullness. 
So the Father wanted the hierarchy of the fullness of God and all of its components to be revealed, to become manifest. And this eon that rushed up out of its presumptuous ego was the vehicle for causing that economy to come to pass. Reading again, and now we're in chapter 77. For this reason, then, it is wrong to condemn the movement that is the word, or logos. Rather, we should speak about the movement of the word as the cause that made an ordained economy come to pass. Now, on the one hand, the word gave birth to himself as a perfect single one, to the glory of the Father who had desired him and was pleased with him. Okay, so this is what happened after Logos rushed forward to plug himself back into the realm of eternal glory. He gave birth to himself as a perfect singleton. None of these eons were singletons. They were all plugged into the fullness. They were all part of the economy of the all, which is the sun. The economy of the fullness of God is an interrelated economy. In another podcast and in my writing, I have likened this to a slime mold. So if you look up slime mold, you will see how they are a single economy that works as one organism, but they're made up of thousands and millions of individual cells, but they're all working in such harmony that you can't tell that they are individuals, that they're an economy of individuals. They look like one big creepy slime mold. They think as one, they move as one. And when the slime mold is broken apart, it becomes two slime molds that each think as one, and they have now their own separate economies. So this eon, who was part of the fullness, left the will of the fullness out on its own. And that is an egoic quest, so to speak. And in so doing, it left the fullness of God and gave birth to itself as a singleton, as a single cell. Perfect, it says. Now, on the one hand, the word gave birth to himself as a perfect single one. And now we're talking about the birth of the demiurge, basically. To the glory of the Father who had desired him and was pleased with him. So it does seem to indicate that the Father was pleased with the birth of this singleton that had emerged out of the fullness. It goes on to say, The things he had wished to grasp and reach, however, which was the glory of the Father, he produced as shadows, phantoms, and imitations. For he could not bear to look at the light, but looked at the depths, and he faltered. So the singleton, which was the ego of Logos, was heading for the glory of the Father, but it was too bright. He couldn't bear to look at the light, and instead he averted his gaze into the darkness. You know, it says that in the glory of God, there is no darkness at all. There is only light. He found the darkness. He's the discoverer of the darkness. And instead of going to the light, he went to the darkness, and he faltered. Reading again, because of this, he suffered a division and turning away. So, there was a split now between self, which is the eon itself, because all those eons are perfect selves that embody themselves as the all, 
They're all perfect fractals of the all, but they sit in complete harmony as the fullness, like that slime mold, right? So this one, the ego who fell, split into two. One side is that perfect self that reflects the fullness, and one side is his egoic self. Reading again, because of this, he suffered a division and a turning away. From the faltering and the division came oblivion and ignorance of oneself and of that which is. So the discovery of that egoic part didn't become the discovery of the great universe or the father and the father's will. It became oblivion, which means oblivion is like nothingness, right? It's, it's complete amnesia. It's being in a coma with a flat line and ignorance of oneself. So he didn't understand anymore who he was and how he fit into the whole pattern of the fullness of God anymore because ego had split away from perfect self. Reading again, his movement upward and his design to reach the unreachable hardened for him and remained in him. So now here we get the concept of something becoming hardened, you know, hardened meaning solid. This is the birth of our material universe, this apparent hard-bodied universe that we live in. It is no longer the ethereal plane, the spiritual plane, where it's all light and it's not hard. It's not anything you could knock on the door and fill the door under your knuckles that that hardness wasn't there. But down here now, we have the birth of materiality. We have hardness. Again, the sicknesses, however, which ensued when he was beside himself. You see, he's beside himself. He has split into two, the self and the ego. And the ego has moved away from the self. The sicknesses, however, which ensued when he was beside himself, arose from his faltering. That is, his failure to approach the glories of the Father, whose exaltedness is without end. That he did not reach, because he could not grasp it. See, no one can grasp the illimitable ground state of consciousness. No one can grasp the Father. So if you happen to be taking megadoses of psychedelics in order to grasp the illimitable, it's not going to happen by definition. The ground state of consciousness, the Father itself, is ungraspable, illimitable. And it says elsewhere in the tripartite tractate that anyone who tries to grasp the illimitable will be annihilated. It's not a good goal. Now we're going into chapter 78, reading again from the tripartite tractate. That which he had brought forth from himself as a unitary eon hastened upward to that which was his and to his kin in the fullness. Okay, so he split into this part of oblivion and hardness, but the unitary eon, that is the self, hastened back upward to that which was his and to his kin in the fullness. So this fallen aeon has split into two. The ego has hardened and become ignorant and oblivious to truth. The unitary eon that was his original self has fled back upward into the fullness to his kin, that is, his brothers and sisters in the fullness, back to his spot in the hierarchy. So the self of the fallen aeon abandoned that which had come into being from deficiency 
and what had issued from him in an illusion, since they did not belong to him. However, the one who had brought him forth with superior perfection from himself became weak after bringing him forth, like a female nature deprived of masculinity. Okay, you know, this always, it's a stumbling block for me to call this feminine and masculine, you know. Feminine is receptive, masculine is outward or penetrating, right? So the outward movement, the productive outward movement fled back up to the fullness and the receptive nature stayed below in this bounded space that has become hardened. For what issued from his presumptuous thought and his arrogance had existed from something that itself was deficient. Okay, let's think about this. What issued from his presumptuous thought, from his egoic part, and his arrogance, okay, so now we're saying that his idea of reaching for the Father was an arrogant presumptuous thought, which is why I call it ego, had existed from something that itself was deficient, and that was after he reached and fell. He became deficient because he lost connection with the fullness. Because of that, what was perfect in him, that would be his true self, big S self, that is a fractal of the Son of God, a fractal of the fullness of God, a fractal of the all, that which was perfect in him left and went upward to its own. And that part, it says, remained in the fullness. And the fact that he had been saved from the, and there's a missing word there, but I think we can assume that it stands for saved from the the fall or the results of the fall or the hardening ignorance of the fall, served for him as a reminder. Reading again, the one who hastened on high and the one who drew him to himself did not remain idle, but they brought forth a fruit in the fullness with a view to overthrowing what had come into being because of the deficiency. Now let's pause for a minute. The Demiurge lives down here below. The Demiurge is not the fruit that the fullness is going to come into being to overthrow the deficiency. Because it goes on to say, quote, Those who came into being from the presumptuous thought resemble, in fact, the fullnesses of whom they are imitations, though they are phantoms, shadows, and illusions, deprived of reason and light, belonging to this empty thought. And what is that empty thought? That is the Demiurge. The Demiurge equals empty thought, being nobody's offspring. And that is why the Sethians call this an aborted fetus of Sophia, Yaldabaoth, because it was nobody's offspring. It was not a child. It was an aborted attempt at a child. Quoting again, going into chapter 79, For this reason also their end will be like their beginning. Coming from that which was not, they will return to that which will not be. In their own eyes, however, they are great and powerful beings, more beautiful than the names that adorn them, though they are only their shadows, made beautiful by way of imitation. For the beauty one sees in an image derives from what the image represents. Now, as I was reading about the Demiurge, I read references to the Demiurge being an image. But image, actually, in the true sense of the word, in my opinion, the images are the perfect eons up there in the fullness. They are referred to throughout the tripartite tractate as the original images. They are the images 
of the all, the images of the sun. What we have down here, those are not the images. The demiurge is not an image of the fullness because it is only half, right? It is the egoic knockoff of the image of the word. And those are called likenesses in order to distinguish them from images. If you were looking in a mirror, as I tap myself, I am the image from my body is projected onto the flat surface of the mirror. What I see isn't the image. What I see is the likeness of my image. You see the difference? So the images are actually the eons themselves. They each have a name and they each have a function and they each have a power. After the fall and the division down here below, those are not the images of the fullness. Those are the likenesses of the image of the fullness. They are merely the flat, ignorant reflections of the names with which they are adorned. Every likeness down here below is a reflection of one of the eons, is a reflection of the images of the eons. But these down here, these original, and we're not talking about people and flowers and dogs now. We're talking about before all the creation came into being. This is pre-creation. Creation has not occurred yet. The fall has occurred. And so this oblivion and hardness of the ego of the fallen word, those are shadows and likenesses. That's why they're called imitations. That's why it's called the deficiency. It doesn't have any power. It doesn't have the power of God. It doesn't have the will of God flowing through it. It's only a mirror. It's what I would call the quantum foam. It's all chaotic. It's nothing is linking up together. There is no building. There is no form. It certainly isn't the father that we talk about because it fell away from the father's space. It really is simply part of one of the eons of the fullness. So it may be a lot bigger and more grand than we are, and perhaps worthy of worship even, if it is the creator God of this universe, if you want to worship creation. But it is not the God above all gods, or the Son of God, or the fullness of God. It is a lesser being to all of those. And what we know about the Demiurge historically going forward is a series of interpretations and musings by various philosophers and theologians. You know, I'm reading to you purportedly from Valentinus. That's why the tripartite tractate is called Valentinian, but I'm not so sure that it was actually written by Valentinus. They're not so sure, the historians. Ptolemy then goes and begins to interpret these various texts. Well, who was Ptolemy? He was a philosopher. Who am I? I'm a philosopher. Just because someone was born 2,000 years ago doesn't make them superior to us. Ptolemy was a guy, and if I sat down with him over coffee at a cafe, we could talk about these things, and I imagine it would be a very stimulating conversation. And indeed, I hope that after I pass over to the other side, there will be a philosopher's cafe where I can sit and chat with all these folks, all of the guys, right? My brother and me will be sitting there in the philosopher's cafe if you want to come look us up in heaven. But anyway, that's just my musings. I don't know that, that heaven's actually like that, but it seems like it would be. But I want to say these various people that then write books about all of this that we are calling the Gnostic Gospels. These are men, humans, just like ourselves, reasoning, using logic and reason 
and observation. Those are our tools. Looking into ourself again for the gnosis and pulling it out, writing it down. Just because they lived a long time ago and you read them in a book doesn't mean they're right. You have to run everything you read through your own filter of discernment. What I'm doing here at Gnostic Insights, I'm sharing with you my filter of discernment and I'm letting you know I've been at this for all my life. And I've been in discussions with my brother who is 10 years older than me off and on for my whole life. And so I've been studying this perhaps longer than you have. And I've read a lot of books. I've got a lot of university degrees. I've been to a lot of different kinds of churches. And this tripartite tractate that I keep coming back to is the book that I find to be the most reasonable, the simplest, the most logical, that has put me most in tune with my higher self and with the fullness and the Father and the Son of God, even more so than the books of the New Testament. But here's the thing. I think they're in conjunction with the books of the New Testament. They're not in conjunction with the books of Ptolemy or the books of the Hermeticists. They're in touch with the books of the New Testament, possibly because that is my cultural background, but it also makes perfect sense to me. So I'm just saying, Gnosis you can trust, right? I'm hoping to bring us into a Gnostic Reformation that strips away all of the rabbit trails that people run through in their pursuit of Gnosis, because that's not where it's at. We need to retract. We need to pull back to ourself and look up, look straight up to the Father. And that is the core knowledge of Gnosis, that this is a fallen world. This is a world created and run by a demiurge, which is a lesser god, and that the god above all gods is our father, the father of consciousness that came before all of that. And this is the logical progression of how that came to be. And that's what I'm sharing with you. Okay, I'll see you next week. God bless us all and onward and upward.